with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, um, as I mentioned, this is uh, our final week here, and so my final sermon for you all, um, for, and, and my final sermon for a little while as uh, we go back to St. Louis. So we're going to take a break from our summer series on the psalm um, just for this week uh, and return next week uh, to that. Any Cowboys, Dallas Cowboy fans? Okay, I want you to raise your hand if you're, I want to look, I want to see Dallas Cowboy fans. What? I'm shocked. There's just, just a minor sliver of you. I grew up a Cowboys fan. One of my earliest memories and most fam- favorite memories was in the 1975 playoffs when Roger Staubach, they were playing the Minnesota Vikings, and Roger Staubach drops back to pass with just a few seconds left on the clock, sees, clock, sees Drew Pearson running down the sideline. He throws it as far as he can. Drew Pearson comes up with this amazing basket catch, goes into the end zone, touchdown, Cowboys win. I was freaking out. I was just totally, like doing somersaults in the, in the, uh, the den there up in Dallas. After the game, uh, the, the reporters came and uh, talked to Roger Staubach and asked him to recount the play. Now, if you don't know, Roger Staubach is a good Catholic boy. Um, and so he, uh, he said, well, you know, I dropped back to pass. I saw Pearson running down the sidelines. I closed my eyes, said a Hail Mary, and just threw it as far as I could. And he came up with it. Uh, The Hail Mary, if you don't know, is a prayer of intercession to Mother Mary on behalf of uh, the prayer. Um, The term Hail Mary, as it is used in football, was born on that day. Um, As the last play before uh, the half or before the end of a game where you try in desperation to put points on the board. This sermon feels a little bit like a Hail Mary this morning, but I'm going to call it a Hail Jesus instead. No offense to my Catholic brothers and sisters. Um, If you're visiting, we are going um, on to do some more studies in St. Louis and take a little halftime break after 15 years of ministry. Uh, Normally, I refrain from cheesy sports illustrations, um, but this image of a halftime really fits for us as it's time for us to take a break, get some Gatorade, and retool for the next phase of our ministry. Um, But as we go, I've thought and prayed a lot about this last play, if you will, this last sermon. What would really be most helpful to you, the Grace and Peace family? And I return to actually the text of the very first sermon I ever preached back at Old Orchard. Um, from 1 Corinthians 1. It is a text that I have needed to be reminded of again over and over and over again. It is essential to the calling of, of Christians and to the church, but it's so easy to forget. Uh, the, the city of Corinth uh, was in Greece, and it was not unlike Austin. Plenty of cultural allurements that tempted the Christians and the church away from their, their main mission, to, to tempted them away from losing focus um, for its purpose to be, as I mentioned before, the body of Christ. 
an image that Paul would return to later in this chapter. Paul returns to that image over and over again in his letters because it is a rich metaphor for the church. As we have mentioned, it reminds us that we are one body, staying together. We are all to participate. There are no appendixes. There are no spectators. Um, But thirdly, it also reminds us that we as the church are the physical representation of Jesus in the world. We are the body of Christ, and we are to bring Christ's ministry really and physically into the world. It is our calling to participate in Christ's mission to redeem the world and to make all things new. That's who grace and peace is, the body of Christ. That's who the Corinthian church was, the body of Christ. But that unified whole body um, is being threatened by division, which causes Paul to write this letter. Now, I need to clear this up up front and be really clear. (laughs) I am not saying at all that grace and peace is divided in any way. That's not what I'm saying at all. In fact, I'm so encouraged um, by your commitment to each other and your commitment to this church. This is a beautiful thing. Uh, And so don't hear me say that. Um, I hope you hear this as more of a preventative medicine type thing, a just-in-case sermon, because the reality is you are vulnerable. You are vulnerable. You are vulnerable first because the devil. We've talked about that a lot, right? The devil wants to divide you up. He wants to scatter you because that will destroy the body of Christ's mission. But also because change always. I've never seen it not breed some level of anxiety. And that anxiety has a tendency to go one of two ways. It either has a tendency to drive us apart, to push us away from each other, or pull us together. And it's my hope that you will continue to pull together in the midst of this change. So um, think of it. I hope you will hear that um, and you will remain in the latter that you already are as one whole lovely church. Paul planted this church in Corinth a few uh, years prior to writing this. I'm sorry, I've got, I'm sorry, Rain, you're going to have to sit back there for a little while. Uh, I got two little side notes here. Um, On that, Paul planted this church about one and a half years before he wrote this letter. And I want to just say two things that are sort of separately as we leave. The first thing is, is that Paul still considered himself their pastor, even though he had gone. Um, I'm not going to die. Well, I don't think I'm going to die. I'm not dying. Um, We're leaving. It won't be the same. I won't be able to hold your hands as you grieve. I won't be able to perform your marriages. Um, But I love you. And that doesn't stop because we're a few states away. Okay, so if you need me, call. I, I, I took a quick flight up to St. Louis this weekend to see if we could find a house to buy. And <laughs> as I was flying in, one of the people from our old church texted me and said, Pastor, I hope that continues for us. That is my prayer. It was for Paul and the Corinthian church. The second thing um, I want to point out is that while we're sad to leave, 
Uh, it is actually very biblical for one pastor to plant a church and, and to hand that then off to the next guy. Um, it's, it's apparent from uh, the third chapter of 1 Corinthians that Paul planted the church and he handed it off to a dude named Apollos, who was a very gifted preacher apparently, and he took it from there. Paul planted, Apollos watered, right? That's actually a biblical model for church planting. I didn't plan on that model. I thought we were going to die in Austin. <laughs> um, but the Lord had different plans for us, just as he did for Paul, who went on to Ephesus from there. But I just say that to, to remind you that Apollos is on the way. And if you could find a guy named Apollos, that would be so cool. <laughs> Wouldn't it? Um. In the meantime, brothers and sisters, you are still the body of Christ. And I hope this text will encourage you to that end. Now, Rain. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 29. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius so that none, no one may say, you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, to, be God. to God. Thank you, Ray. 
I was walking on campus the other day, and it's a, a off time. There were um, there weren't many students out, uh, but uh, there was a family who was walking uh, just a little bit ahead of me. Uh, the dad was about 50 yards ahead of me, um, and the mom was. Uh, I was just coming up on her, so there was about 50 yards between mom and dad. And there was a little boy on his bike that was riding up and riding back between the two. And as I approached this family, the little boy uh, yelled out to mom, who was right next to me, come on, mom, hurry up. And I'm not kidding, she slowed down. It was clear she wanted nothing to do with dad up there. They were, in that moment, a fragmented family. And that is basically what's happening with the Corinthian church family. And that grieves the heart of God because a fragmented church disrupts the body of Christ's mission. As Paul will say later, the eye cannot operate without the hand and the hand cannot operate without the eye. You need each other. You have to work together or else the mission will suffer. Um, Paul is kind of like that little boy urging unity between the two, and he does it in four things. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have four points here in case you're keeping score. Um, the first thing is he exposes the key problem that's going on that's creating the fragmentation. Uh, he then, really interestingly, I think, shows a, a very sneaky manifestation of that problem um, in the church. He gives the solution, thankfully, the third point, and then lastly, how that solution works, how that solution unifies and empowers the body of Christ for mission. So key problem, number one, sneaky manifestation, number two, the solution, number three, and then how that solution works, okay? First point, key problem. Any guesses? It's pride. Of course it's pride. This is my 10,000th sermon on pride, Um, I feel like anyway. Uh, Because it is, as C.S. Lewis says, it is the great sin. Um, This is, by the way, my 20,000th reference to C.S. Lewis. So so you got that. I mean, what would a sermon be without a reference to C.S. Lewis? Um, In truth, I'm so thankful for that man. Um, But C.S. Lewis says that pride is that problem in all of us. Um, We hate it in other people. And we often don't see it in ourselves. And it's a great divider because pride demands that things are done our way. Uh, Pride demands to be right, to take credit. And conversely, it judges others and is often highly critical of others. The Corinthians' pride, uh, like ours, has a deep need to boast in itself, our factions, our groups. I cannot believe so few of you don't like like the Cowboys. Like, what's wrong with you people? And to be critical against those who disagree with us, our factions, our group. The presenting problem here, to use counselor speak, is about who baptized who, which seems strange, doesn't it, to our ears? All of this talk about, I'm glad I didn't baptize you and all this stuff. It seems strange to us, but really it's just the presenting problem that Paul leads with. It is a the thing uh, that these people are grouping up over and judging each other about, right? Some, uh, there is apparently some hierarchy of 
of pride that have had to go with who baptized who. And they're fighting over it. It's causing friction. Um, but the deeper problem is pride in our group. What we think is right, what we think is good, what we think is better. And so they're boasting in themselves and they're critical of others. That's causing the fragmentation, um, but the, in part. But the, the, the sneaky manifestation of that in the church um, comes next. It's, it's often, listen to this, the manifestation of pride often comes when we evaluate the church based off of our standards of worldly wisdom. Let's say that again. The sneaky manifestation of pride in the church comes when we evaluate the church based off our standards of worldly wisdom. It's sneaky because it's natural for us to do that. It's totally natural for us to do that. We all have experience in life that help us grow in wisdom. We help us contribute to the bottom lines that are important in our lives, right? Um, And we bring that wisdom to the church. Of course we do. Into the body of Christ. That's not bad. That's good. If you're really good at nurturing kids, you bring that wisdom of nurturing into the nursery. <laughs> Amen. If, if you're really good at communication or you're really good at mobilizing volunteers or if you're really good at spreadsheets or you're really good at teaching, of course, bring that wisdom into the body of Christ. Amen. Bring it in. That's all good. And that's in many ways why, some of, why you are all a unique gift to the church because you bring that in and there is a need for every part. Uh, but sometimes, sometimes, and this is Paul's point, we begin evaluating the church from the place of pride of our own worldly wisdom. I'm going to give you several examples to hopefully make this hit home. Let's take our vision of a gospel-formed family for the city. Great vision. Great uh, vision. But everyone has a different interpretation of what a good family is, don't we? Everyone actually has a different interpretation and therefore different expectations for what a good family may be based off of the experience of their own family or based off the bad experience of their own family that they don't want in the church, right? Um, for instance, some, some think that the, the church should really have strict order. Other think that the church should be much more free-flowing. Right? Let's, let's put that to the kids. The kids should have a strict order, a strict, strict set of things to do. Others, the, the kid, let them run, let them rejoice, let them have fun. Right? Which one's right? I know each one of y'all thinks they know which one's right. That's my point. Okay? There's actually wisdom to both sides. But we give the big eye roll to the other one. How could they think that? Right? Um, that's a danger that leads to division when we think, oh, I know how this should go. And it's not going the way I think is it should go, and I'm right. And they're wrong. Uh, second example. Um, church leaders sometimes measure a church's success like we measure the stock market. And we think that's, the, that's what the church should function as. You, you invest, right? You invest and you should get a big return, a big return on your 
investments, uh, nickels and noses, uh, a worldly return. So stockholders like you will be happy and won't fire their CEO. Let's use a football analogy. Um, sometimes we think it, the leadership thinks that running a church is like running a football team, working for worldly wins, right? Have y'all y'all know John Chris, the the uh, the comedian? Uh, he's on YouTube. Look him up. C R I S T. He's really hilarious. He pokes good fun at the church. Um, I think he's hilarious. Uh, last week I saw one of him, and he was posing as a football coach who's coming after a Sunday morning. He's coming in front of the press the press conference to re, re, uh, recap the weekend's performance. And uh, so he's sitting up there like a poke, and he said, you know, we just need to clean up our unforced errors. I walk on stage, and my mic is supposed to be on. We practice that all through the week. We practice that, but then Sunday morning comes, and it's not on. I don't know what to say, guys. We practice it. But it wasn't that, that bad, you know, um, from a number standpoint. We did okay. There were five applauses and uh, three amens and one mm, preach, which was pretty good, actually. It's natural for a businessman or a football coach or a mom or a teacher or a counselor to evaluate the churches based on their own worldly wisdom, what they've learned. But Paul is really clear here, and this is the point, really, that that wisdom, while it may be really good to run a family and it may be really good to run a business and it may be really good to run a football team, can easily become a dangerous standard for how to run and operate the body of Christ. And it can cause division. I was confronted deeply with this myself years ago. I had, uh, in my earlier career in sales and marketing, I, I had learned how to manage and motivate um, people, and I brought that wisdom into church planting um, and leadership, and gosh, it just didn't work like, I, like it worked in the marketplace. And I was baffled, and I picked up uh, Piper's book called Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. An exhortation basically to pastors and the church to, quote, banish professionalism in our midst because it's reliance on worldly wisdom that can easily get the church off track. Again, hear me. He is not saying we shouldn't have good spreadsheets, good programs, good communication. Neither am I, neither is Paul. It's not what we're saying, but he is saying that when we build churches based off of worldly wisdom, we can easily get divided and off track. Um, and it's sneaky. It's a sneaky way. Because those things don't necessarily work in the body of Christ. What is needed, point number three, is the solution that Paul explains here, which is not worldly wisdom, though again, it's not unimportant, but what needs to drive us is the wisdom of the cross. Which, from the world's perspective, is super counterintuitive. It's crazy. What would you think if I approached the, the leaders of the Austin uh, tech scene here as a consultant. Just imagine, I know it's hard to imagine, but just imagine that for a minute, that I came to these leaders and I said, okay, here's what you should do. You should forget about getting the right people on the bus, like Colin says. Forget about that. Go out to the highways and the hedges and, and invite everybody to the table. 
the poor, the oppressed, the widows. Invite them, listen to them, hear from them. Okay, second thing you should do is you should disclose all of your secrets to the competition. All of your secrets. You should care at least about as much about their bottom line as your own. And while you're at it, third thing, hire a poor Jewish carpenter as your CEO who the top minds in the industry thinks a criminal. Um, and then execute him and tell everyone about how you killed him in the most shameful way. And then you will be super impressive. Then you will be super relevant. Then you will sell tons of product. How would that advice go down? No, it's crazy. And it is crazy. According to worldly wisdom, it's crazy. And, and any professional institution that is insistent on a financial bottom line would be stupid to take that advice. That's not what Paul is saying. He's talking about the church. How to, how to lean into the church. The church is not a professional institution. It ought not to be evaluated on nickels and noses. We deal in the eternal bottom lines of salvation and healing and evil and death. As one preacher said, when we depend upon organizations, we get what organizations can do. When we depend upon education, we get what education can do. When we depend upon man, we get what man can do. But when we depend upon the cross, we get what only God can do. Billy Graham gave a TED talk. I ran across it after he died a few months back. And he was talking to all of the, the world leaders in in technology, and he said, I want you to try to apply your wisdom to the problems of evil and sin, suffering and death. What could you come up with? Yes, Austin's entrepreneurs can come up with amazing solutions for amazing bottom lines. Don't hear me say that, but their wisdom provides nothing to any of the eternal bottom lines the body of Christ is really all about. In those bottom lines, the cross actually declares that the wisdom of the world is folly. There's a great book, if you want to read more about this, Leslie Newbegin's Foolishness of the Greeks, talks about this very thing, taken from these very passages. Um, the, a critique of Western churches' reliance on their own worldly wisdom that strikes at the wisdom of the cross. Quick exhortation from me, quick aside here, um, to the search committee. Coming up? Yes. Get someone who's really well equipped. Paul is super clear about getting a leader who is well trained, well equipped, very mature. But brothers and sisters, please evaluate this person on one main thing. Does he lead you to Jesus? Does he have cruciform wisdom? That's the most important thing. When we were looking at buying our church in St. Louis, um, I, I, we were, there was a, a church building there that we were looking at, and I walked up into the pulpit, and there on the pulpit was uh, a, a withered yellow paper that had clearly been taped up there for years and years, and it said simply this, Sir, show me Jesus. That's what Paul is saying here. 
Jesus is the solution. You don't need a, an impressive pastor according to the world's standards. You need someone who will show you Jesus and who needs Jesus himself. The cross is the wisdom of God and the central wisdom to drive the body of Christ. Last point. Um, what is it then? It's complicated, but I'm going to try to simplify it as best I can. It is a recognition, I believe, of our complete neediness. Our an utter humility to receive God's grace and to follow there was no jockeying for position as the disciples, as the Jerusalem merchants, as the Roman centurions, as the religious CEOs gathered around the cross, right? There was no bragging at that point as they were gathered around the cross. And then they heard Jesus' words of what? Father, forgive them. His proclamation that all of those impressive people needed more than anything be forgiven. While they were smart, hardworking, good with a guitar, mostly they needed forgiving. Brothers and sisters, every part of the body of Christ that walks through these doors needs desperately to be forgiven. The cross is a community of messy people who are humbled by their complete need Jesus. I asked Mac uh, if we could sing Amazing Grace, which we're about to sing in a minute. Um, I, everyone loves Amazing Grace. Um, I, it, it holds a really special place for me um, because it reorients me when I'm feeling like I've got the cat by the tail, um, when I'm feeling self-sufficient. It was the song that God used instrumentally in my conversion. Um, I, we had it sung at our wedding. Uh, my ordination, particularization. Any of those times that I felt like I could sort of do one of these, you know? We needed to hear Amazing Grace, right? Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. A wretch like me. We don't have to go any further there. I'm already brought back to the truth that I need to be forgiven and that only the cross provides it. No professional strategy will work there. This is why Jesus chose tax collectors and prostitutes and the poor as his first disciples, because they knew they needed something. That's why he had to break Paul of his brilliant religious CEO wisdom before he would even think about using Paul. That's why the Sermon on the Mount has these crazy statements like blessed are the poor in spirit or blessed are the meek, blessed are the hungry and thirsty. For theirs is the kingdom of God. They will inherit the earth. They shall be satisfied. Those who know they are utterly in need of Jesus 
are the ones who Jesus uses the most. Quick statement, just quick thing, reference to this refugee crisis on the border. Y'all, our hearts should be breaking over this. I mean, if you really think incarnational about these, these beautiful human beings down there, I mean, my goodness. Our hearts should be breaking. Whatever you think about the political stuff going on around it. But one thing that I haven't heard mentioned is it, it seems to be like, oh, those poor people. Oh, those poor people. Oh, those poor people down there. Or, oh, those people who are going to take advantage. Or, oh, those people who are a threat. Or, oh, those people, whatever it is. No one's saying, oh, those people who have so much to teach us about faith and about the kingdom of God who could teach us faith. Newbegin says, a person who wields power cannot see the truth. That is the privilege of the powerless and it's true. It's true. The powerless have eyes to see their need. And that's how the world really works. That's the biggest bottom line. Um, there's no room for boasting at the cross. The cross drives us to care for one another and to um, love one another as fellow people who need forgiveness. Uh, Revelation chapter 5, if you haven't read it, go read it this afternoon, start to finish. There's this amazing scene where all these uh, these these church leaders, religious leaders are worried because there's no one with enough wisdom to open the scrolls, which basically are the, these eternal bottom lines I'm talking about. And then the Lion of Judah comes in. The Lamb comes onto the, the scene and opens them with his butt, blood. And everyone turns, all nations turn to, to the Lamb and say, worthy are you to receive power and glory and honor. Oh my goodness, you did it. You opened the scrolls. You gave the answers that we've all been wanting to hear. And there's this just giant worship fest boasting in the Lamb of God, the Lion of Judah, who came and did it. Um, I'm going to sing one more song, y'all. You thought you'd get out of here with just one verse from Amazing Grace. Sorry. This is the song that I sing when I'm feeling really weak and really needy. I have sung this um, on occasions um, that are hard even to, to think about. It was sort of the theme song of our old church. I didn't ask Mac to play this one because it's super cheesy. Um, but I sing it when I'm, and sang it then when I just knew I was way out of my league. Um, I sang it en route to my ordination exams, which I was sure I was going to fail. It's called the Lion of Judah. It's from this Revelation 5 passage. You're the Lion of Judah, the Lamb who was slain. You're the Lion of Judah, the Lamb who was slain. You ascended to heaven and evermore will reign. 
At the end of the age, when the earth you reclaim, you will gather the nations before you. And the eyes of all men will be fixed on the Lamb who was crucified. With wisdom and mercy and justice, you'll reign at your Father's side. And the angels will cry, Hail the Lamb who was slain for the world, rule in power. And the earth will reply, you shall reign as the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. Brothers and sisters, throw up your hail Jesuses every single day. Hail the lamb. He was slain for the world. He opened the scrolls to death and sin and suffering and disease. He has done it, brothers and sisters. He has done it. Piper said, after exhorting the church to banish their professionalism, he says this, he says, in its place, put prayer, <laughs> passionate prayer, poverty of spirit, hunger for God, white-hot devotion to Jesus Christ, utter indifference to all material gain, and unremitting labor to rescue the perishing, perfect the saints, and glorify our sovereign, yours. Final word, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, Brothers and sisters, at Grace and Peace Austin, pray. I pray that this season will be marked by prayer more than anything. That you will throw up your Hail Jesuses every day and out of the poverty of your spirit, hunger after God. I pray that you will pastor each other in the language of forgiveness, um, that you will give grace, that you will encourage, that you will seek to learn even from those whom you disagree with. Pitch in, all of you, all of you, in your weakness. Don't think that you have to be strong in order to participate. In fact, in your weakness, God will use you more powerfully. Why? Because God's going to get the glory. <laughs> because he has won the day. Boast in him, brothers and sisters. Boast in him every day. And you shall remain the body of Christ and be used in powerful ways kingdom of God in Austin. Let me pray. Father, um, anoint this church with your spirit. I pray that they will be full of sight. That they will be full of cruciform wisdom. I pray that you will empower them to pray and to pastor each other and to love. I pray for the session, the diaconate, the search committee, and I pray for whoever Apollos is out there, that he would be humble and that he would know his job is to do one thing, and that is show 
these amazing people, Jesus. We ask that in Christ's name. And all God's people said, Amen.